0: And welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, one minute at a time. In this, our fifth season, we are looking at Joe Johnston's 2011 film, Captain America, The First Avenger. I'm Andy Nelson from the Next Real Film Podcast.
1: And I'm Pete Wright, artisanal podcaster.
0: Today we are talking about Minute Eight, which begins with Schmidt poking the snake in the eye and ends with the Tower Keeper's dark prediction for Schmidt. Joining us again on the show today and all week, we have Curtis Findlay from the
2: Epic Marvel Podcast. Welcome, Curtis. Hello, hello. Minute three for me. This is great. I, I'm, I've been loving it so far.
1: So much, so much intensity right now. So much intensity. Uh, this, <laughs> I don't know why it is, you guys, but the, the the slow push of his finger, his gloved finger in the first seconds of this minute, which part of the snake is an actual button it is it i am frozen in time on this minute frozen in anxious time i don't know doesn't the eye look like a button
2: it could be the head it could be something i don't know i don't know what's gonna push what's gonna push who knows if he had just actually uh um, used the tail as a handle, it would have opened the entire tree and there's the whole the Infinity <laughs> Gauntlet. <laughs> he just, he only if pushed holy, the eye.
1: You don't know everything, do you, Schmitty? You don't know
2: everything.
0: <laughs> I, I do think it's funny. Like, it looks like it takes him no time to find the snake find its eye he kind of like moves his finger across it and then it's like at the last minute he's like no i'm not going to use my index finger i'm going to use my thumb and he like does this switch and he like jabs it right in the eye with his thumb there's something so funny about that that i I don't know it always strikes me as as like this comical switch so dramatic
1: yeah yeah he's a gentle push it
0: also really makes me want to have a secret compartment somewhere in my house I, I feel like that's something that I'm just missing. When I see them work in movies and stuff, I'm like, gosh, what what's it going to take to do that? And i am gonna I then going to have to kill the person who put it there so they don't know it exists? And I'm the only person.
1: That's Well, of course you do. And that's why we don't all have <laughs> secret compartments, because we'd all have to hide the bodies, and nobody wants to get into that business.
0: It just takes it into a very dark place for all of us. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a moment where we get some great looks from Schmidt. Uh, we get to really just see his face. And I just, I gotta say, Hugo Weaving, I mean, I know he's an Aussie. He's great as an elf king. He's great as a piece of the Matrix. And man, does he look just like a nasty German. I love his look here. <laughs> like, he's got a great haircut. His costume's great. It fits perfect. And B. Shepard does the uh, the costume design for the film. And I, I just, I, I mean, he's just fantastic. I just, I don't know. As I watch... These particular minutes, our introduction to Schmidt as this character, I just think God, they, they they found the perfect person to play this character
1: it, It's also funny he's not that that tall of a man, but they shoot him in his menacing moments as if he's a giant and uh, I, I think that's a that's a really nice touch. that sort of physical uh, prowess uh, that he exudes uh, in this role is fantastic. Well,
0: you haven't seen the lifts on his jack boots. <laughs> Huge, <laughs> big. The the other big thing that we have here this opportunity to open this thing. Do you two have any feel of the way that he opens this? Is that I, I, I anytime I see this sort of thing where we don't get the reveal, it's just a light coming out. I I Quentin Tarantino's done it. I feel like there's always this reference to this. That's painting. what I think of. <laughs> yeah, right? We all go <laughs> to fiction. <laughs> we all go to pulp Isn't fiction. it
1: the same thing? Again, not to not to lean too heavily into the Raiders of the Lost Ark episodes, but isn't this the the uh the reveal of the glowing light inside the Ark of the Covenant? Uh, yep, totally. Ceremony? Absolutely. It's the same thing. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. It's it's there's there's so very much this Pandora's
0: away. box thing, right? This this thing of yeah. you know we don't you don't want to know what's in the box. It's just going to be bad for you. Yeah. Um, but I love the way that filmmakers have been playing with light coming out, and we don't necessarily get to see what it is. It's just the illumination, and in this case, also fantastic sound design of I don't know. It feels very spacey, like just kind of this space energy. And so to that end, it's perfect. um I just I don't know. I love it. I love this blue light. It's um very fun it's a great way to emphasize the mystery
1: this light as he it does open the box it's it's at about 22 seconds 22 23 24 25 this light has a feel to it to me i 'm just watching it, but it feels like his head should be blown back. The light <laughs> is thick it 's intense in the scene, it is so <laughs> beautiful, it feels like it should hurt him, and I think that 's what leads to uh you know the rest of the line you haven 't looked at this uh you know. It, yet, right? Because it's not meant for human eyes, right? It's not meant for ordinary, you know, human eyes. And and that's what it feels like to me. So that that tie, that sort of visceral connection to light having a, a substance to it uh, is, is really special right here.
2: I also love how the light is such a contrast to the rest of the scene because this whole scene is in a dark tomb. It's all brown, monochromatic, and then the blue is a ast- is just like the biggest contrast and it's and therefore it stands out just even more like it's it's just it's there and you can't help but notice it because literally everything else in this whole scene has been dull and dingy yeah, it's all that firelight look that we have uh, very
0: much. That f- and it feels very old world, and this blue thing feels very uh, futuristic, and that's something else. That mm-hmm. I mean, the color it also kind of represents that. I love that. And to your point, Pete, like it's not a smoke-filled room, but as he opens it, it you have this kind of almost this smoke, this mist emanating from it. So the sound design, the the that the way the light feels very like almost tangible. It all feels very otherworldly i love the way that it comes across yeah now my question for for both of you is as this sound kicks in do we do you guys feel that this sound is actually something that's diegetic that all of the people in the room are hearing or do you think that's just for our ears that's a really good question it shuts off when he shuts the lid yeah which makes me think that it's a diegetic sound but um
2: maybe it's just i like to think of it that way i bet it is but they may not even realize that they're hearing it, like it's something that's subconscious, subconsciously understanding or something like that. And and that would tie
0: into exactly what they're talking about. How how Schmidt says you've never seen this, and and the tower keeper says it's not for the eyes of ordinary men. Which when you hear something like that coming from just opening this box, that also makes it feel like it's it's extraordinary, right?
1: Yeah, I totally I totally get what you're saying. There are a couple of layered elements in in the sound design. Um there's the shimmer, right? There's the shimmer that is really isolated in a couple of of uh, quick cuts in as he's staring in silence at it when the rumble, like the echo rumble of the space, the that's underneath just sort of evaporates. And that shimmer is the thing that feels to me like it is emanating from the Tesseract itself. Everything else is just feels sort of dramatic. But that rumble does sort of come back right before he closes the lid to make it, a, 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 I think, more intense. I don't think anybody's hearing the rumbles. I think they're hearing the shimmer. That's my take on it after rigorous research over the last seven seconds.
0: <laughs> well, no matter how you slice it, it's it's interesting. Like, are they feeling the energy? Like, there are so many things that you can read from the way that they portray it here with kind of that blue, smoky light, the sound. Yeah. Everything feels like if, if I were there, I would be feeling like this energetic thrumming is kind of, I don't know, I, I feel like they depict it in a way where I almost think that everybody in the room does feel some sort of thing.
1: I, I can I can absolutely get that. I wish they had actually taken a little bit more time to show the impact on the rest of the room, because all we get is David Bradley and and Schmidt. And it would be interesting to see, you know, are the rest of the Nazis cowering in the corner behind the sarcophagus? Like, what is it that they're, you know, what's going on around them? How is it impacting the space? doesn't feel like much, but... I'd like to imagine there is. It would have been nice
0: to your point to have, I mean, we had a shot of the Lieutenant when Schmidt drops the fake Tesseract and shatters it, the pier one Tesseract, as you were saying, uh, that would have been, uh, this would have been a great opportunity to bring him back in, get another shot of his reaction. Now that he sees the real one, you know, Uh, like that would have been a nice thing to include, but right. So lovey. This is also, we have this fantastic, uh, line that, uh, to what you were talking about in yesterday's minute, Curtis, this reference to the Nazis digging for uh, things uh, elsewhere, uh, doing architectural digs and stuff, as he says when he's looking at it, and the Fuhrer digs for trinkets in the desert. What a fantastic line.
2: Yeah, actually, I think that was the one I was thinking was in the last minute. I, um, But yeah, the uh, that whole concept, just just drawing it in makes it feel real, like this is this you know, Schmidt actually existed in World War Two for real. <laughs> I love it. Well,
1: and especially the the digging for trinkets in the desert is if we don't have enough of an homage to Raiders of the Lost Ark in this movie, now we're literally calling <laughs> to the Fuhrer digging in the literal desert that we actually have seen yeah. uh, in in the same period. Like I think that's wonderful grounding both in history and in cinematic history. I think that's a really nice nod to wink kind of um a- yep. I can't imagine
2: that it's coincidence. It has to be an actual
1: illusion. Yeah.
0: I mean, considering, I mean, geez, Joe Johnston worked in the visual effects department for Raiders. It it just makes sense that, Mm -hmm. you know, he has this connection to that group of people, the Spielberg Lucas. Uh, kind of team, it makes sense for him to kind of be playing with that and and doing it as his own homage to those projects that all of the, those uh, those people had been working on. So I I don't know, I love it. I, I think it's such a fun little connection there that ties to that film, to it ties to his history with them, to ties to the real history, as you were talking about. I, I think that that is, um, I don't know, probably one of my favorite little throw, throwaway lines in the movie.
2: It's just something that has a lot of meat to it for sure okay i want to talk about the snake a little bit if that's okay um i think that this little compartment that holds the tesseract i think it was not there to hide the tesseract from bad guys i think it was hidden there to as a warning to keep out the good guys away from it uh because we already know because filch has already said you know this is not for human eyes um the snake the snake it being purposely being hidden behind a snake uh like snakes are always seen as the bad guy right they're always the sign of evil like you know dating back to uh you know the bible the this the serpent in the garden of eden well, even in the roots of Yggdrasil, they're eating the roots, right? So, yeah. Well, exactly. Yeah, all of these, all of these um, religions and, and mythologies have snake characters that are, that are not good. They're up to no good. And so, um, the fact that we have it hidden behind the snake, and what does the snake do in the Garden of Eden? It, the snake is the tempter right? It tempts sure. the, the humans that are there to to do something that they shouldn't do, to get involved in something that they shouldn't get involved in. And that, I think, hiding the cube behind a snake is maybe a symbol saying, hey, don't listen to this snake. Leave this snake alone, because this is bad news. You don't want to get involved with this Tesseract.
1: That's, a, that's an interesting perspective. I can totally see it. And it's is it interesting at all? I mean, Andy, you, you said that the you made a point that the light was that there was some that like it's not a smoky room, but there is some there are waves as if dust comes out of it. Right. Like it yeah. lends credence that this thing is something to avoid. It's not a utilitarian drawer. Right. This is not something they're actively working on. Right. This is a thing they, that is to be feared and avoided um, and protected.
0: And and designed in a way where, like, if if for some reason they do have to take it out to do something with it, this drawer has a lid to it so that they're all they're still not going to see it. And, you right. know, to that right. end, it's, yeah. it's really interesting the way that there is a layer upon layer to kind of keep them from looking at it and, and touching it.
1: Probably could have done a little bit more, like maybe a lock on the, on the <laughs> lid. Maybe they could have gone one but- more. little combination what they
0: need is one of those uh dan brown uh like combination locks like from the da vinci code where you have to go what is the (laughs) word what is the combination of letters
1: slide pieces around to get the all the wood aligned in just the right way it just feels like they're coming up short like it's a lid like they did the absolute bare minimum to avoid gaze and no further so they figured you know what the 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 eye button is enough. The
2: snake will will do the trick. <laughs>
1: it's a strict like maybe a C a, a C C plus effort. That's all I'm saying is that you know above and beyond. Kids, come on. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna need you
0: to then help me design my secret room so that I can make right. sure that I have all these layers. <laughs> <laughs>
1: built into... Don't worry, you'll never get in your own secret room when we're done. <laughs> what was that word again? Dang it! Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> buffoon. It's always buffoon. <laughs>
0: Uh, 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 well, I don't know if I have anything else for this other than, you know, I mean, just production design, Rick Heinrichs, uh, shout out to uh, the fantastic, this fantastic panel that we have for Yggdrasil here. Just this whole room, the, this castle rock tower that we have set here. I, I enjoy this set quite a bit. I I, I think that it's a, a fun location for this all to be taking place. Uh, do either of you have any, any last
2: thoughts? Is this the minute where the tower keeper says, uh, you will burn? Fool, you cannot control the power you hold. You yeah. will burn. That's right. That's, I already. <laughs> that's right. Showered um, today. <laughs> he. It's kind of a foreshadow, a little bit. If you think about the very end of the movie, um, I and mean, it's not an actual burn, but it's kind of an allusion to that. So I like I like the little lines like that.
0: Well, and that's, that's interesting. And that's a good point. And uh, we can certainly talk about it uh, toward the end of the film when we get to that point. But it does make you wonder, like, what does the Tower Keeper know about this? Like, how did it come into their possession to kind of care for this thing? And what does he actually know about it? That's, that's actually a really interesting um, thing to kind of think about, you know, like what is the story of these tower keepers and the care that they've had for theoretically centuries of, of this particular object?
1: Yeah, you're right. And, and it sort of begs the question, is this their sole task, right? Their sole sort of mission for humanity is to protect this thing. Sure, they sweep and mop and whatever. But do they like it? Are they essentially like custodians of the lore? Or, you know, we, we don't get any hint of that. And I think by necessity, let's get on with the movie but <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's an interesting you know this is a this would be a great series for disney plus
2: right let's go back the and keepers. really give david bradley something to chew on it's just the tower keeper lore <laughs> or at least a one shot or something <laughs> yeah right? exactly what does what he does
1: the what does filch do on his downtime <laughs> when the nazis aren't attacking exactly that's very funny. Well, and it, I
0: mean, it is interesting because this whole Castle Rock Tower location that we have in Tonesburg, Norway, here. I mean, you'd think that it was a defensive tower at some point when it was kind of this actual castle that they had before the whole thing ended up kind of being destroyed. So, like, yeah, what what was there a greater defense for this thing, and it just kind of kept whittling away until <laughs> right. you know, we just have a tower that's all that's left.
2: <laughs>
1: and and a drawer
2: behind a the tower sink. and a drawer. <laughs> eventually, it's just a standalone drawer. <laughs> okay, one more comment but, from me, and then I'll then I'll have uh, gone through all my notes. Um, there are multiple different cosmic cubes in the comics, and they all seem to eventually take on a human form in the end. Interesting. So this uh, the the very first one in particular um, became a it it just became a being called uh cubic and it was like a, and just a scientific uh, or a cosmic being, I guess, or whatever. So I am, uh, I'm, I'm anxiously awaiting the point when in Marvel cinematic history, the, the tesseract uh, becomes a person. <laughs> I don't know if that'll who, happen. Who was,
1: respo- who was responsible for that? Making the, te- making the cosmic stone or the cosmic cube. A person, a person named Cubic.
2: Oh man, uh, I think that's a Jack Kirby. No, it's after that. It's I can't remember. It might have been Steve Englehart or something, but it's uh, mm. it it was in the eighties. I'm pretty sure. And then the, like okay. the Skrulls made a cosmic cube, and then theirs turned into what I'm being called the Shaper of Dreams, I think. And then there is another cosmic cube that. No, the have you do you know Secret Wars, the comic Secret Wars? The, sure, beyonder, the beyonder the mm-hmm. beyonder merged with the with the molecule man and became a cosmic cube at some point himself, and then that cosmic cube turned into um another being or something I can't remember there's a very convoluted history there yeah, but there's a lot always yeah. is. That's fascinating. That's right. What
0: I like to imagine is that Cubic is actually the the connection that the Marvel Cinematic Universe has, uh, or the Marvel Comic Universe has, with the uh, Rubik's Cube cartoon from the 80s. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm now going to imagine. Oh, but, you <laughs> nerd. That would be great. If we see a Rubik's Cube in Odin's treasure room at some point, there we go. Well, actually, that There's doesn't Rubik. exist
0: technically. That's right. That's right
2: all right well uh
0: it's been a fun minute a lot of interesting stuff to talk about uh curtis remind everybody again
2: about your podcast and where they can find it sure thing i'm at epicmarvelpodcast.com, and uh, you can find us in social media just look for epic marvel podcast we are there uh, and we just i just love talking about comics all the time
0: comics all the time nothing wrong with that nothing wrong yeah. with that um, we have uh, our own membership. We'd love uh, for you to consider joining us to kind of support the show. You get early access to the episodes, you get hiatus episodes. It's uh, always fun to listen to those. And uh, you can learn more about it at truestory.fm/slash Marvel Movie Minute. It's uh, $5 a month, or you can get a discount if you join at an annual rate. Uh, Pete, we'll talk to you tomorrow.
1: I could do this all week.
0: <laughs> all right, everybody. Until next time, true believers.
1: marvel movie minute is a production of true story fm engineering by andy nelson this season's music is spread the news by anthony vega and this season's show art is by winston yabo find the show at true story.fm and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews consider doing that for this show